This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas. Our thanks to John Carlson of 2% Realty for joining us in the first hour. And coming up, real estate appraisals with our lead appraiser contributor, Dan Jones of Campbell and Pound. But first, a few highlights from this past week. Shaw Mobile rolled out a new brand this week, available to Shaw Internet customers only, who can connect at home via their internet connection and on the road with Shaw's Wi-Fi hotspots. You go beyond those hotspots and and you'll pay a data fee. The big service providers, Bell, Rogers, Shaw, Telus, were put on notice two years ago by the federal government to start lowering their prices, which is a nice way of saying, do it voluntarily, or we'll do it for you via new rules and regs. Another Canadian company has fallen victim to COVID. David's Tea, based in Montreal, plans to reopen only 18 stores and keep 208 shuttered. Of the 18 to reopen across Canada, only one in Vancouver at Pacific Centre. The Vancouver Canucks issued layoff notices this week to 50 of its 200 operations staff and warned more cuts are on the way if Rogers Arena stays empty. And that appears to be the scenario for the unfit future. Over at the CFL, the situation is even more dire. They've asked the government for a $42 million handout, which has so far fallen on deaf ears. Winter, flu season, and COVID, Vancouver Consumer has learned that both the federal and provincial governments have ordered up an increase in the flu vaccine. Even though the flu is among the 10 leading causes of death, we're happy to report the number of flu cases has dropped. And that is in thanks, part to COVID, and our awareness of the need for a vaccine and washing our hands. Vancouver City Council finally approved a pilot project allowing alcohol in four public plazas beginning August 10th. The North Plaza at the Art Gallery, the corner of Hornby and West Hastings, the plaza on Butte Street just south of Robson, and a temporary pop-up plaza west 17th and Canby. Welcome back to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. Joined this hour by Dan Jones, president of Campbell and Pound Real Estate appraisers campbell-pound.com campbell-pound.com uh dan you've been operating for 81 years you don't sound 81 <laughs> i'm not 81 manny <laughs> this this is a business that was a family business um started back in 1939 with uh robert pound and bruce campbell um both have passed on now of course my father purchased the business in 1961 and i took over in 1986 so um, a lot of our uh, elderly clients uh, remember some of the previous um, owners and members of Campbell and & Pound, and, uh, and a lot of the newer ones remember me. Well, a nice family tradition carrying on for all these years. Uh, good on you folks for doing that. And, of course, any time a family business can survive, uh, it's because it's uh, a such benefit to the larger community. When we talk about appraisals, Dan, we normally think, well, you know, I own this big office building and I want to sell it. Uh, let's bring in uh, Dan Jones from Campbell and Pound. But you often do uh, residential appraisals as well. And, and, and uh, we talked before we came in this afternoon about how important it is to get a handle, especially if you're considering building a home on a piece of property, how important it is to know what it's going to be worth once it's built. Uh, that's true. We, you know, we call that the before and after approach. And um, 
Um, the the other terminology that might be used is the as-is value versus the as-if value. And what we mean by that, Manny, is uh, the as-is value is what you see is what you get. So they will take a piece of property and we will go out and appraise it and we'll figure out what its value is in its as-is state and condition today. And uh, that'll give value number one to the client so they know what the baseline or the benchmark is. Second uh, part of the equation is uh, hypothetically, what would a brand new house, if I were to tear this existing home down and I was to construct a brand new uh, new build on the property, what what would it be worth if it was to be sold today? So we would quite often take the, the blueprints, plans, builder's plans, builder's uh, specifications, what's going to go into it, quality and all those things, put it all together in what's called an extraordinary assumptive report with hypothetical as if it were 100% complete today assumptions and conditions, hypothetical conditions, and we put that together. We come up with value number two. Um, so we compare the first value to the second value. That gives us that gives the client a really good and clear idea whether um, the development idea that they have is is worth carrying on with. Because of course there's going to be a, a builder's cost, and then there's going to be a builder's profit in there. And those, those two things are usually combined into one. And um, the clear thing is that you want that that number to be less than uh, value number two for for it to be um, uh, you know worth going ahead with the exercise. Yeah, I guess every developer that wants an appraisal wants the uh, new build to be a lot uh, more valuable than uh, the, the one he's building <laughs> or the one he's uh, tearing down and and building for. That just makes. Uh, some very, you know, easy, common-sense business approach to it. How about the little guy that is looking to sell their home and um, maybe doesn't get, you know, some straight answers from a real estate agent? I don't want to call it a straight answer, but a knowledgeable answer about what a home is worth. What's the difference between getting an appraisal from uh, Dan Jones at Campbell and & Pound and evaluation from your local real estate agent? Um, well, the values, you know, uh, with a lot of it, we deal uh, a lot with uh, our clients, our professional realtors as well. And uh, we work in concert a lot of times because we would be working many times for the mortgage company, financial institution, where the, the buyers may be borrowing money to complete their purchase when the uh, marketing and transactional uh, activities take place by, by the realtor. Um, a good realtor will probably um, have a very similar or, or close value to a real estate appraiser, or they should. Um, and I would twist that around the other way. The appraiser should have a value that's similar to what the market value is. Um, we use these a, a range of you know, margin of error on these things of around 45 to 5%. That's usually what is accepted in the marketplace, at least from our firm. Um, you may consider something to be a, a Volkswagen and somebody else may consider it to be a Porsche, you know, depending on how we all interpret market information and, and interpret the data that we're all looking at, right? Um, another example of what we talked about just prior to this was we, we talked about whether it's worth building a house. A very common homeowner um, exercise is to figure out whether or not they should carry on with a particular renovation. There may be somebody that wants to finish their basement. 
They may want to uh, update their kitchen, get rid of the old kitchen cabinets, put the new ones in. Um, so the same exercise that we talked about in in uh, new construction and a new build can be done with renovation and uh, updating in, in the home. So we, we will do the as-is value in the first instance, and then for the client, they'll, they'll give us a list of all the renovations they're planning on doing, and we will uh, put that together in a hypothetical as-if-complete valuation number two. And, and that can give them some guidance on whether or not it would be worth pursuing what they think they they wanted to do in that renovation. Well, there are varying opinions, uh, Dan, as you know, about which renovations uh, bring back uh, uh, your return on investment, uh, which are the highest kitchen renovations, I think, uh, are right up there. Uh, The lowest ROI for a renovation that at least I've read is uh, putting in an in-ground swimming pool. That's right. Um, You know, in in British Columbia, um, especially in the Vancouver area, um, our weather is wonderful at this time of the year in the summertime, but it's it's not unless you have an indoor pool. Um, people aren't thinking about utilizing their pool in December or in February, as you know. It's a little cool out. Um, we find that there's the difference between cost and and value. Those two two things are different animals. And many times we've gone to homes and found uh, that the homeowner has spent up to upwards of $100,000 on putting in a lovely, lovely swimming pool, uh, you know, whether it be gunite or vinyl liners and, and all the uh, ancillary structures that go with it, the cabana and the, the heat stand filter and all those things, and uh, patio areas. And then when the home sells, um, we do what's we perform what's called a paired sales analysis. We try to compare like with like and uh, homes that are of the same uh, quality, construction, same neighborhood if we can, one with a pool, one without. And we do a study on that. And our studies have found, and as most realtors will also tell you, we find it's only about a third of uh, a one-third recapture. In other words, you're probably only going to get back between twenty-five and 35000 on that $100,000 expenditure. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, people with very young children tend to not be excited about swimming pools in the backyard um, for safety uh, issues. And older people that are baby boomers uh, get into their later part of their life are not interested in paying the heating bills anymore. And their kids are uh, adults and grown up and maybe have left home. So you've got this demographic that is specific to swimming pools that that love their swimming pools. They use them in the summer, um, and they don't mind paying those heating bills um, to take care of business with them. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you have to look at those ongoing maintenance fees. We're talking about a pool in particular. They can be, uh, you know, pretty high. So it might be good Mm -hmm. for one person to be able to do it. But as you point out, rightly so, Dan Jones, president of Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers, uh, the next buyers may be in their golden years and don't want to pay the cost of the pool and they don't want their young grandchildren around a pool. There are all kinds of issues uh, surrounding renovations. Uh, Dan, you have talked uh, on prior occasions when you have visited Vancouver Consumer here at CKNW about the different types of reports you can prepare. Uh, you know, you go to the the simplest of reports uh, to something a little bit more complex. What's the reason for that? Well, the form, there's two types of reports. To, you know, to, to make it simple, there's the, the long and the short. 
um, we refer to it in 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 our profession as a, a form report. And a form report is exactly what it says. It's a printed out form with a lot of check boxes. So, for example, um, if we walk into a house, there's probably drywall. So there'll be a check mark uh, on on drywall. Uh, the zoning may be single family RS. So there'll be a check mark there. So what 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 we're summarizing is we're we're expecting that the person or the entity that's ordered the appraisal is actually a sophisticated user of appraisal services. They understand what that means. They don't need a, a full explanation of that zoning, for example. Uh, the second format that is used in industrial commercial investment valuation on a regular basis all the time is what's called a narrative format. And the narrative format is exactly what it says. It's, it's like a booklet-style report, Serilux binder, could be between 60 and 150 pages long, depending on the complexity of the property being appraised. Usually used in apartment block valuation, industrial, light industrial, commercial retail valuations and hotels, whatever. Um, it's any, pretty much anything other than residential. The form report was developed by the banks and the financial institutions in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. Um, they didn't see the need to uh, carry on with long descriptions. So if you looked at the zoning, for example, in the narrative report, the uh, appraiser is going to tell you what the zoning is, what it means, what kind of uses are allowed under that zoning, what are the side yard and the setback and the rear yard requirements uh, for the particular city or the municipality that we're dealing with, and how does the subject fit in? Uh, is the subject compliant to those those particular items? So the zoning section of a narrative report might be one or two pages long. And on a form report, it's just going to simply have a check mark that says single-family zoning RS and then move on to the next particular classification or item in the appraisal. Well, so that's kind of a long short of uh, the, the two differences and why they're, they're different. And the, the real answer here is homogeneous da- data, lots of homogeneous data. That's what the word residential means in our, in our market. We've got the MLS system. Um, realtors u- utilize a daily. Um, homeowners can go onto the Internet with Redfin and all these other various uh, organizations, and, and data is freely available. But the one thing that's clear is that uh, form reports were developed for homogeneous properties where there's lots of available data. Um, what form reports are not good for are very, very unique properties where the data is scarce and not similar. And this is this is what we run into all the time when we do non-residential properties. You deal with almost every uh, commercial property or development property has has uniqueness to it that is not readily available with that kind of data on the MLS system. Many of those properties don't sell on MLS; they sell exclusively. Um, with commercial industrial agents. Well, uh, Dan, if if I was buying a uh, a piece of property, I would want to know what development permits have been taken out within about a four mile radius of the property I'm looking at, and I use four 
four miles as a, as an example. It doesn't maybe have to be that far, but I don't want to buy a place and then, uh, you know, find out six months later that, oops, uh, Walmart is opening up across the street from me and there's going to be traffic congestion, uh, you know, decreasing the value of uh, my piece of property. Uh, you as a real estate appraiser, are you able to dive deep into the development permit situation? Yeah, when, when you're dealing with the industrial commercial valuations and, and, and the narrative style reports, let, let me give you a fee range because it, it all comes down to the amount of time that the appraiser spends. Yes, the answer is yes, the appraiser can find that out with discussions with planning departments, uh, official community plans in the various cities and municipalities, neighborhood plans, and ultimately uh, um, Google can help us do that as well. Um, all of those things are based on the amount of time the appraiser spends, but a, a commercial industrial narrative style report is going to cost a client anywhere between probably $1,900 and $10,000, depending on the complexity. An average fee in our business is around $3,000 um, for, for a narrative style report, whether it be in a apart, small apartment block, whether it be a service commercial uh, gas station, those types of properties. Uh, when we're dealing with single-family dwellings, uh, whether, um, and, I, and I'll say the common or the standard single-family dwellings, whether we're in Surrey, Burnaby, North Van, Richmond, wherever, or Vancouver, um, the fees start at around $400, and then the executive homes can can move all the way up to $2,500, depending on, um, you know, how many square feet they are. Some of the, the very high high-end executive homes can be over 20,000 square feet up living area and have all kinds of um, special purpose uh, structures built on the property and one-of-a-kind type type real estate. Well, I, you know, if it was me, and it is me, because uh, I'm pretty picky about this kind of stuff when it comes to real estate, that would be the best 400 bucks I would spend. I would want to know every branch, every leaf, every homeowner beside me, I'd want, them, I'd want that long form uh, to be sure. Dan Jones, president of Campbell & Pound, real estate appraisers, joining us on this edition of Vancouver Consumer here at CKNW. Campbell-Pound.com, Campbell-Pound.com, or call Dan directly, 604-270-8885. Dan Jones, president of Campbell & Pound, real estate appraisers campbell-pound.com campbell-pound.com direct line 270-8885 camel and pound family-run business operating 81 years in the lower mainland you're obviously doing something right uh dan we talked in the first segment about the need for an appraisal is uh if it was me buying a piece of property boy i i'd want to know everything um, who are you generally hired by? Are you hired by a homeowner, a developer, a real estate agent? Who enlists a Campbell and Pound appraiser? Well, um, there's a lot of reasons for, for appraisals, obviously, and and we are uh, we're sometimes hired by realtors when when they'll have a property that might be more challenging for them, maybe a rural property with uh, servicing issues in in sort of remote locations. Uh, farm properties. There's, there's all anything that's very unique, and there's just not a lot of available da- data. We have regular clients uh, um, that are realtors that that are also our clients, and, and we work in concert with them to try and help them determine uh, what the value of the property should be, and uh, help them with their their listing on the properties. Uh, we we obviously get a lot of business from the financial community, uh, credit unions, banks. 
um, mortgage brokers, those types of folks. Uh, friend of the show, Angela Calla, is also um, a very good friend of Campbell and Pound and books appraisals with us as well. Um, we get work from strata councils to do depreciation reports. Uh, we get work from strata councils to do replacement cost new valuation, which is needed to figure out the premiums for the insurance industry when the common areas are being insured within a strata corporation. Uh, we have uh, probates. Many lawyers utilize our services on probates, on estates, on uh, baby boomers passing their real estate down to their children, uh, division of assets, divorce. Uh, the list goes on and on. The, the renovation thing, there's the accounting industry uses us for capital gains to determine uh, what the capital gains tax is going to be. They need to know what the property is worth retrospectively. Maybe somebody moved out of their house, a couple moved out of their house and rented it, say, seven years ago. And now it, the property ha- has sold, and so they know what the property sold for, but they need to know what it was worth the day they moved out seven years ago in order to figure out, an accountant can figure out the capital gains tax that's going to be due to the government. And... Uh, that's where we come in. They'll they'll ask us to value the property, for example, as of 2013 in in this case, and we'll do it retrospectively. So, lots of reasons, lots of lots of different clientele. Uh, we do work for institutions, um, City of Richmond, City of Vancouver, um, school boards, um, Metro Vancouver, GBRD, those folks. Um, all have have uh, reasons. Uh, expropriation appraisal when they're doing highways. Uh, Department of uh, First Nations lands. All all kinds of reasons and all kinds of different uh, clientele. Yeah, I guess any time there's a piece of soil or a, a brick or a mortar, uh, in comes Dan Jones to give you an evaluation, an appraisal of uh, what that's worth. Uh, you know, it's all about the do re mi and. I, I guess when it comes to divorce, you mentioned that briefly, and there is a division of assets. It uh, mm-hmm. unfortunately can become quite contentious. Is it your experience when you are valuating either a business or a piece of real estate, i.e., the family home, uh, that uh, you know you act on behalf of one lawyer or one half of the separating couple? And another appraiser acts on the other half, and somehow or another, you draw the correct figure down the middle. Um, yeah, you know, there's been some changes with litigation valuation for uh, Supreme Court proceedings, and uh, uh, in BC under the Family Law Act, um, the, the new Supreme Court rules provides that an appraiser can no longer be an advocate for um, a single party. That would be for in a matrimonial case, for example, for a husband or for a wife, but that the advocacy from the appraisal appraiser has to be for the court. So um, we are a neutral advocate. We're trying to determine an unbiased and an independent valuation to the court to be used for a division of assets. And in that particular case, um, what you said used to happen a lot in the 90s and uh, the early part of the new millennium. The, um, each party would get an appraisal, and you know, ultimately, 
uh, a lot of times, not every time, but many times um, the two valuations would be averaged and that's what the two parties would settle for. The problem with that is there's probably a winner and there's probably a loser if the values are, are somewhat different. What we find now is under the new Supreme Court rules and the Family Law Act, we'll get, um, we will be uh, instructed to become the evaluator or the official appraiser for both parties. And um, the, um, the, the lawyer that's representing uh, litigant number one will get permission from litigant number two's lawyer, and they will agree to pay 50% of whatever our appraisal fee is, depending on where the property is, what it is, and go from there. Um, and that seems to be um, very common in, in, in today's market. Well, I, either or, uh, the, the, the fee is the same. You, you don't really have any skin in the game for either party, which is separating. So it's a third-party arm's-length valuation, and I think that's where some of the real value comes in, Dan. That's right. Yeah, uh, Dan Jones, president of Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers, campbell-pound.com, campbell-pound.com, 604 when I was uh, doing a little reading on your company, which has been operating in the Lower Mainland for 81 glorious years, I noticed one of the things that, uh, and I, I wouldn't thought this because it, it didn't involve at least uh, what I could see to be real estate, but you also handle employee relocations. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, employee relocation uh, is, is a... Is a, it's a niche area for real estate appraisers. And uh, many times uh, corporate relocation companies um, will take clients of large corporations. And uh, I'll give you an example. Our, our uh, Department of National Defense, our, uh, our Royal Canadian Mounted Police, have relocation companies that handle them. So if, a, if an officer or a corporate person is is transferred from let's say toronto to vancouver just as a an example um there'll be an appraisal done um and ordered by the relocation company um that will do one side of an appraisal of the property of the person being transferred and um then that person also will be given a list of approved appraisers or an appraisal panel and they will choose one and they will get to order their appraisal, and usually the uh, the company or the corporation covers the cost of those appraisals uh, in both cases for the transferee. And then they uh, just as they have their moving costs uh, covered and things like you know other incidentals, uh, the real estate appraisal is just one of those. And then they will do the same thing with real estate uh, professionals. They will uh, interview two or three. Uh, realtors, and they'll make a decision on who's going to market the property. And uh, many times, what they'll do is they'll um, they'll pay the uh, employee out because depending on how quickly that transfer is needed to be moved, and uh, the property might be sold six weeks later after they've moved to the new city or the new location. So it's an area that's uh, been around for many, many years. Uh, the terms of reference, I always uh, not warn people, but I, I do uh, have to explain, you know, when we talk about a simplistic um, uh, appraisal, like for a private client, that's one term of reference. 
A much more onerous term of reference would be the um, litigation appraisal for uh, Division of Assets for Supreme Court because they have um, a much more expansive terms of reference that need to be covered. Uh, There's a lot more time spent on those reports, uh, a lot more uh, data provided, and very much the same with uh, relocation appraisal where the appraiser is required to measure every single room of the house um, photographs of pretty much every single room of uh, of the house, every corner of the property, and uh, a, lot, a lot more maps and, and description has to go into it. Um, besides just your your sales analysis to come up with a final conclusive uh, estimate of value. One of the things I'm seeing in my area more and more, and I know you get involved with valuations of expropriated property uh, just down the street, actually in the next block from me, Dan, uh, the municipality expropriated, I think, about uh, 30 uh, feet, uh, and it basically cut everybody's front yard by about 30 feet so they could put right. in a new sidewalk and, and widen the road, and all of a sudden you wake up one morning and you've lost 30 feet of your your front yard. Uh, how are you? How is the homeowner compensated, if at all, for that expropriation? Well, there's usually the uh, the taking authority, and then the uh, person or the entity that's having their land taken. That's usually a homeowner. So, in the, in the case of a uh, a road widening like that, the appraisers. Um, uh, it, it's pretty much the same as the location valuation that I was talking about. There, there will be the taking authority will have a list or a panel of approved appraisers. They will choose one of those appraisers. They will provide the homeowner with a check or compensation and a copy of the appraisal that supports that valuation. Uh, you know that that compensation. But that does not tie the homeowner down to accepting the check as being the full compensation. They then are allowed or permitted to um, to get their own appraisal, and then their own appraisal fees are usually covered by the taking authority as well. And uh, you know, in in Section Three of the uh, Expropriation Act, they talk about a before and after method and a ratio method. And a ratio method is usually What's the value divided by the square footage of the land? I don't know. For, for sake of argument, let's say $25 a square foot, um, 10,000 square foot lot, uh, $25,000. Then there's a before and after method. And the before and the after method would be what's the value of this property before the expropriation? And let's compare it to what the value is after the expropriation. So if you had a 130-foot lot by 66 in Burnaby, for example, um, and you took off 10 feet, and now you're selling that property, and instead of being 130 feet deep, it's 120 feet deep. Um, Just from my experience, I'll just throw it out there, it's probably not worth a lot less than it was with the 10 feet. So the Expropriation Act says that the homeowner shall get whatever is the greater of the two methodologies. So in this particular case, probably the ratio method would be the preferable uh, methodology and would give the homeowner the greatest return. So they would take the the ratio method. There are there are expropriations on large farms where they go from 100 acres down to 99.5 acres, and they take a little corner of land for highway expansion or something like that. There may be no appreciable change to the value before or after, but 
they would be paid based on the ratio method. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that, Dan. We've got so much more to cover, but uh, we'll wait for your next appearance on Vancouver Consumer here at CKNW. <laughs> Dan Jones, president of Campbell & Pound Real Estate Appraisers, campbell-pound.com, campbell-pound.com. Or you can call Dan directly, 270-885-270-885. You are listening to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas, back in a moment. And you're back to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas, joined again by Andrew Ferreira, executive producer, Vancouver Consumer. Ask Andrew. Okay, Andrew, I'm asking you, what is the mural festival? This is the first I've heard of this. Uh, it's a... Uh it's a festival that's been happening over recent years uh, that you may have seen some of the work if you're in the Vancouver area uh, up and down Main Street between about First Avenue, Olympic Village and up towards kind of Broadway or 16th. You may have seen giant murals painted on the side of buildings. Uh, and that's what the mural festival is. Every year, the city of Vancouver usually taps a bunch of artists and says, hey, let's make some art. Let's make the city pretty because and let's be honest here outside of, you know, a few landmark buildings, Vancouver is a forest of, of turquoise colored glass. Um, and outside of that, it's just cement. So I think it's, I, I personally believe that the mural festival is one of the best things that the city has to offer in terms of uh, getting people out and about and really exploring and walking around and going to small business and, you know, looking into all these artists and supporting them directly. I think that this is one of the most important things the city has. Uh, but this year, and I'm super happy to hear this, uh, this year, the uh, Vancouver Mural Festival uh, is expanding. So this is five years. This is their fifth year. And it's a three-week festival. It's going to start on August the 18th, and it'll run until September the 7th. Uh, artists will paint and unveil over 60 murals and get this nine neighborhoods, which is outstanding. So the Muir Festival originally lived in Mount Pleasant. So, of course, they're going to be seeing it. There's also going to be South Granville, Robson, the West End, downtown Vancouver, Stratcona, Gastown. And those don't surprise me. They're all kind of centrally located near the downtown core. But the last two surprise me in the best way possible. River District which is, if you're unfamiliar, and some people aren't familiar, it's where all those brand new towers are cropping up in Vancouver along Marine Way, right by the Vancouver Boundary border. That's River District, all the way from Boundary to kind of Kerr, almost Victoria, the, uh, along Marine Drive. That's River District. And the final one is Marple, which always gets overlooked, in my opinion. Well, two quick questions. Uh, number one is, what are they painting on? Are they painting on buildings or... Yes. Oh, on buildings. Yep, city-owned city buildings? Uh, some private, some city, yes. Okay, so the private, obvious uh, landowner or property owner has to agree yep, to have yep. the building painted. And number two, as an artist, uh, do you apply? Yeah, so these kinds of things, I'm unsure about the actual selection process. Um, but as far as I know, uh, the city will take applications and they select from the pool of applicants. Uh, so this year, they're also going to be launching a mobile app, which I think it should have been done in year one. Uh, and the mobile app will essentially, you pull it up on your phone and it tells you what you're looking at. Oh, a description, yeah. Yeah, so it'll tell you where the murals are, who painted it, what year they painted it, yeah. the, the story behind it. Uh, and I think that's, an, that's, that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, the app will be, able to, uh, will be open for download on August the 18th. Uh, there's also going to be a number of virtual and physically distant events that are being hosted by the festival. Uh, there's going to be a pop-up patio held. There's going to be live music. There's going to be comedy. There's going to be drag. There's going to be uh, mural tours. Uh, 
I, I really do think that this could become a marquee event in Vancouver, having, you know, three weeks or a month in the summer where you go around the city and see what everything has to offer and you support local artists, you support local business, just get out there and have fun. And in these, in these COVID times, you know, this is a great excuse to get outside and be able to enjoy yourself without fear of, you know, being in enclosed spaces or something else like that. Nine neighborhoods, 60 murals uh, this year, and you've got your own portable tour guide, and that's an app that can describe each of the murals and where they're located, Totally free. Yeah, I just think that is, uh, that is pretty darn good, and uh, I hope... Uh, I hope this thing really begins to take off from this year moving forward. Andrew Ferreira, our executive producer here at Vancouver Consumer. You have been listening to Vancouver Consumer on CKNW. I'm Manny Bazunas. We'll see you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.